foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I am Danica of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM, 89. FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCBLP, 107.9 FM. We're also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check out our website at www.codepink.org forward slash radio, where you'll find all of our episodes from episode one to our most recent. So um, today we will be talking about uh, drones, drone warfare, a little bit about Daniel Hale's case, um, and the Espionage Act. Um, our first guest today is Lisa Ling. Lisa, thank you for being here. Um, Thanks Lisa, for having me. Uh, Lisa began her military career in the early 1990s as a medic, surgical technician, and nurse. She became recognized for her information system skills and was encouraged to enter the combat communications field. There, she participated in the operations, maintenance, and security of various communications computer and other technologies. The Intelligence Surveilla Surveillance Reconnaissance or ISR uh, enterprise required more people to build and operate it. So her combat communication squadron was assimilated into the drone program and moved to Beale Air Force Base. She deployed to various locations during her career. Her last active duty assignment was with a base in California. Uh, after her military service, she immediately traveled to Afghanistan to see firsthand the effects of what she participated in. She has a BS, uh, Bachelor of Science in History from UC Berkeley and is continuing her education post-COVID-19. She's spoken out against armed drones, killing with inaccurate data and about military technologies, immense unchecked power and reach, writing for or featured in the Los Angeles Times, the Daily Beast on PBS NewsHour, Cyberwar Viceland and ABC Australia. Lisa is one of the three protagonists from the U.S. drone program featured in her in the documentary uh, film National Bird, which we'll talk a little bit about today. That was directed by Sonia Kennebec. So, Lisa, like I like I said, thank you so much for being here. Uh, so, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your experience with the drone program and whistleblowing, so they can kind of get a sense of all of that? So, there's a couple of things. One is um, one is no, I really can't tell you too much about my experience with the drone program because it's all done in secret. Um, there are a few things that I can tell you because it's become public since um, since I have come forward. And one is, is that the drone itself, the airframe, the airplane is something that um, in America we've always kind of been infatuated by. And you can see today that even the plane Top Gun or the movie Top Gun that's using an old airframe, right? People are infatuated by that kind of 
by just by planes in general and 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 by those kinds of weapons of war but that's not what's really happening what's really happening is a huge a gigantic socio-technical assemblage that's behind the scenes that nobody sees that is um changing the entire face of war to become network centric and how to explain this well we've all seen those pictures of computers you have a computer maybe a video game maybe another node over here maybe a printer over here right imagine that the node is a drone right it's not a printer it's a drone just like what you'd see as a picture of the internet cloud and you would see like a tank over here is another node not a printer but a tank right and there are less people that they want to send to war and they want to send more machines and this is this is not going to make wars shorter this is not going to make wars safer um in my opinion and in my experience it will be quite the contrary thank you so much um is was there like a particularly eye opening moment that you can talk about here where you felt like you had to come forward with information on the program so basically um there's been several eye-opening moments in my military career. It's a long freaking career. So of course there's going to be but you're in this system that um that basically otherizes people and changes humanity and and all of that and 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 so it's really difficult to take one moment and be just absolutely riveted by it and want to come out. And then there's all the pressure of coming forward and um and the ostracize the ostracization of coming forward and that all of that stuff happened to me but but in the 90s was my first moment and i didn't recognize it at the time the president of panama basically said while we were building roads we were helping and doing medical stuff for the guaymi indian population a beautiful indigenous peoples there and the president basically said thank you thank you for building these roads thank you for you know treating our people but please do not step on our culture and that one basically a sentence while the president of panama is talking to all of us troops that are there um it it never left me and i would see things and be able to look back and reference that um and how we callously don't care about other people's cultures and even the people when you talk about the drunk program you're talking about people surveilling who are 18 to 24 years old and they do not have the cultural competency or the cultural awareness to really identify what the afghan people are doing and then what ends up happening is because the afghan people on the ground knew that there were drones above them they changed what they did they didn't go to public gatherings as much they isolated and then the people that were observing them are looking at them going wow they're isolated they're keeping secrets they must be you know like the whole patterns of life thing they must be a target and so you start to see this feedback loop that makes this whole kind of remote observation so problematic so misinformed shall we say That's really interesting and that's like that's something people don't talk about a whole lot when they talk about the effects of war or costs of war cuz just like the war on terror at home 
Um, you know, people like American Muslims who knew the FBI was in their mosques would stop going to Friday prayers. They would be, um, you know, more hesitant to like participate in their cultural activities. So that's thank you so much for bringing that up, because that is something that not a lot of people talk about, I think. Well, and that's something um, that Daniel Hale spoke to. Right. He also released an unclassified document, an unclassified document that explained to these people who were just erroneously targeted to be put on no fly lists how their attorneys could help them get off the no-fly lists. So even though it was not even classified, it was kept secret from the American public as a bulwark against our, our very valued and valuable Muslim population that we have here, right? I mean, I couldn't imagine um, doing nothing and living under that kind of surveillance, that kind of just like a sort of Damocles hanging over their head if they happen to be today's othered, right? So like from the Chinese Exclusion Act, from, you know, what happened to all the indigenous people that were here before we were. And I mean, you can go on and on and on about how many people we have otherwise otherized in favor of white supremacy. And a lot of people don't talk about white supremacy either, but that is exactly what all of this is. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to talk about a, a documentary uh, in the next question called National Bird. But if any listeners are interested, there is a documentary that came out a couple years ago called The Feeling of Being Watched. It's about Bridgeview, which is a suburb of Chicago that's like predominantly Muslim, predominantly Palestinian. It's a very, very large Palestinian population. It's about government surveillance so highly suggested but um awesome movie that was a really awesome movie it gave me chills yeah it's really incredible it's just south of where i live now i'm in chicago so hit home for a lot of people i know you know people who live a lot of my friends from college live in bridgeview so um so to, to go back to national bird and like also daniel hale um who you are friends with um, can you tell us a little bit about the, that experience, like being part of the documentary? And is that, how, is that how you met Daniel in the first place or did you meet him prior? Um, no, it's, I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about it because Sonia Kennebec, the director of the film, she's really clever. She's really smart. She really did her homework. Um, I didn't want to be in any kind of film that was just going to be some quick like anti-war protest film, right? But when Sonia came to me, she took a week pretty much maybe longer to convince me to be in the film because I am not, so I don't like being behind the camera. I do not like talking in public. I mean, I know that it seems kind of strange now, but, um, but I really, it's not something that I, that I ever envisioned I would be doing and to be followed around with a film crew with a camera. Oh my God. That's really, um, it's not fun to say the least, and talking about some of your most painful moments. No, not fun at all. But there's a couple of things that Sonia did that were pretty impressive to me. One is she was very, very interested in my travels to Afghanistan. Um, and she was very, very interested in the Afghan people. And that impressed me a lot because a lot of anti-war films, they center on the victim who is the soldier, right? And they turn us into victims when in reality, we ought to be framed as subject matter experts because we know about war. And um, the other thing is, is that Sonia came to me with a binder full of information, not only on the technology itself, 
right? But her research was quite extensive. And she found us. It wasn't like we were publishing that we were all in the drone program and shouting it from the rooftops because at that time, nobody talked about it. And um, this was in um, 2015, right? Um, and so it was quite impressive what she was planning to do and how she was planning to do it. And so, of course, um, I reluctantly um, said yes. And I did know... Um, Daniel from before. I mean, we pretty much, it's a very small cohort of people. In when you look at the military as a whole, the people who have spoken out on the drone program, there's not very many of us. And the fact of the matter is, is that we do all know each other. Um, and, uh, you know, in fact, in the film National Bird, Daniel's wearing a t-shirt that I made. Um, and I just, I didn't know, and this was the clever, the cleverness of Sonia. I didn't know that Daniel was in the film early on. I had no idea who the other protagonists were during the filming, right? None of us did. Um, we didn't, you know, um, we just didn't know. And um, that, that information all came later. Wow. So you never just talked about it amongst yourselves that you were filming a movie and it just, when did you realize? No, because I mean, cause basically, and that is the brilliance of Sonia's filmmaking. You know, I mean, she didn't want us to like plan a story or she wanted what came from the heart to reach the heart. Right. And so that, you know, she didn't want us to conflate our experiences or anything like that. And the whole thing, because of the way it was at the time, had to be completely top secret. And the other thing that I have to say about Sonia Kennebec is that unlike other news agencies who shall at this time remain nameless, right? She was very, very, very careful about protecting our identities. She was very honest and upfront about the ramifications in participating in a film of this nature. And she actually cared about us personally. In fact, we're all still, you know, in touch. That's incredible. I, you know, artistic, uh, like honesty is so, so important. And especially in dealing with sensitive issues like this. And what did the audience reaction to National Bird uh, end up being? Do you feel like it made an impact on viewers? And what were your hopes that people would get out of the film? Well, I'm just going to throw this out here. Um, because it's another issue that we're having. It's another problem that we have, right? And it's that indie filmmakers, that independent filmmakers, there's no, there, there's no budget for it. And so, like, independent thought is not able to get out there in the world for people to see. And what was really amazing, unless you, unless you have a boatload of money and you can fund yourself and pay the thousands of dollars that it costs to make these films, Right. And so I just have to say to all the independent filmmakers out there, thank you. Thank you for pushing against a huge bulwark that prevents independent films from getting out there into the world for all of us to see. And um, and the other thing is, you know, um, the reaction from people there, there was a myriad of reactions. There were some people because it, it's a lot. Right. It, the watching National Bird, you need time to recover afterwards because 
there's a lot in it that people don't know. When we talk about war, when we talk about technology, when we talk about drones, we talk about them in such a way that, hey, the drones went over to war and our people, nothing happened to them. It's all clean. It's sanitized. It's like a business model, right? It's not like a military that kills and, and, and breaks things and, you know, blows stuff up. It's not like we don't talk about it in that frame. And we certainly don't see the emotions coming from both sides. Right. And this film puts, you know, puts a very complicated topic in some beautiful and artistic renderings of places both in Afghanistan and in the U.S., um, ironically, using some drone footage in the film. Um, and there were people that, that so there were people that um, we asked. Right. So we specifically made an ask. And we asked, um, as for when we did Q and A's, as former um, participants in the drone program, um, that that uh, that people, you know, we we are not for protesting at bases with the drone program because those of us in the drone program are not permitted to talk to the people that protest outside the base. So you may get to talk to the cooks in the kitchen or what have you. And then the other thing is it it re-traumatizes young troops. And that's not helpful to anyone at all. You're not getting to the officers that make the decisions. If you think you're getting to the NSA that works in the program as well, or any of the other three-letter agencies or the Border Patrol or anybody else connected to drones, it's not happening there, Right. And so we had people that pushed for that agenda that came into the films and discussed it. And, um, and, and for me, I was not okay with that. Um, I really appreciate all of the work that's been done against drones and all of that and the passion that comes out of people that do that. But I think, again, we're having a cultural misunderstanding because Inside the drone program, it's a pretty distinct culture. And I didn't know what went on there until they let me on into and read me into what happens on the other side of that secret wall, right? And once you get in there, it's different. It's difficult to explain. But, but there are ways that we can be a bulwark against the advancement of the, this technology. There was a period of time when I believe that we could have taken the weapons off of the drones that fly. I believe that, that there was a period of time when that was absolutely possible, but people spoke out about grounding the drones. So that would be, if you look at it in its true context, you can all have computers, but you must remove the mice. You could still use them. You still have trackpads. You still have keyboards. You still have other input devices, right? So it does nothing to the technology as a whole. But when we went into the theaters and the other folks that we met there, right, some were contractors. There was a couple of times when contractors got very boisterous and very vocal and very adamantly against what I was doing or what the others of us were doing, what Sonia was doing by making this film. But we have to take a look at people. They have to have that. They have to cling to that for their mental health. 
Because when you really start to realize the immensity of what you are part of and the devastation that it causes around the world, it's huge. Yeah, and I kind of wanted to get into like your thoughts on <clears throat> advocacy around drones. And just for the listeners, there's like a bunch of different kinds of drones. Um, and we're like in specifically, um, at least at Code Pink, we talk about, we say drones, which is sort of a blanket statement because there's like photography drones that take pictures of aerial shots of like your protest. And then there's, um, you know, weaponized drones. Um, so, um, and and in that in that right there, there are some that are connected to this immense system, and others that are not that soldiers carry with them and take them with them on the ground. These can be surveillance, or they could be weaponized. Yeah. So what do you like? You kind of mentioned it. Um, got into the you know ground the drones versus. Um, like stop weaponized drones, but as it stands right now, like what is your advice to advocates when it comes to weaponized drones? Well, first I wanna say that that I, I want people to really look at the machinations that are happening behind the airframe, not to focus. I can see why people focus on the airplane. You can actually see it, you can see the weapons, and it's pretty much um, a given that you can have oversight to something you can see. But the thing about all of this war technology, this surveillance technology that's coming home in our smart cities, that's coming home in our smart homes, that is ubiquitous, that is all around us, right? Is it, it's more complicated and more difficult to look at. And it's definitely something that oversight um, is going to be much more difficult. Like, for example, artificial intelligence, making kill decisions. That's huge. And what kind of oversight? How do you have oversight? How do you do those things? Um, this We're in the midst of a technological revolution that is as, or larger, and as drastic as when the steam engine happened. Or when the telegraph happened. And for all intents and purposes, the reason some of these inventions come into play is accidental intentionality. For example, the telegraph was really meant for um, more about how commerce could be governed so people could make money, right? And then it ended up being something that was of quote-unquote benefit to war because you could get orders across to the other side of the world in minutes rather than weeks, months, and days, right? And so right now we're in the same kind of paradigm where we have this internet of deadly things that's as ubiquitous as the internet. Think of ways for war. So where is that car gonna be, that tank gonna be, that boat gonna be, where are the choke points, where's the traffic? All of this technology can and is being used for war. And technologists like Google, like um, AWS, like, I mean, all kinds are being tapped. And why are they being tapped? Because they own the infrastructure that can carry this, store this, and move this. And as a result of that, these same huge monolith corporations 
right? Um, there's something um, that has been called, like Meredith Whitaker wrote something called The Steep Cost of Capture. And I recommend that people read it because not only are these mega corporations directing war, they are also directing the artificial intelligence education because they have the infrastructure that allows students to learn. And so this is not like a black and white issue, drown the, drown, ground the drones, and we're done now. This is something much larger, and it's going to take all of us working together um, in the activist community to push back on it. And this is something that we, the folks who used to be in the drone program, Daniel, Sean, Brandon, all of us know and we were looking at from the inside. And so the other thing that I want to say is, let's stop making martyrs. Why are these people going to prison? I am evidence that you can blow the whistle and make an impact without ending up in jail. Why is it that activists think that going to jail is like this sign of, I don't know, being a good activist? Is that true? Or can we have some strategy? Can we have some long-term goals? Can we have some discourse that we can all agree on and move forward with without some of our most knowledgeable subject matter experts ending up silenced behind bars? There's got to be a better way. And I think we can do it. Yeah, it's a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> Um, so we have like a minute left, um, and in our next interview, we'll be talking to William Nyheisel about the Espionage Act and a little bit about Daniel. Um, but before we go, what do you think listeners should know from one drone whistleblower to another, to about another, um, about Daniel Hale, your friendship or his case, just any context you want to provide before people go into that? So in May, 2019, Daniel Hale was arrested and indicted. Um, he did close, he disclosed classified and unclassified documents about, um, basically the military's assassination program, right? Um, and he turned that over and everybody, you know, talks about it as he turned that over to a source. He turned it over to the intercept. Let's be real. So that people that follow are cognizant of the safe places to do these things, right? Um, he pleaded guilty to one count under the Espionage Act, and that count had a minimum sentence of 10 years, and he was sentenced to 45 months. Um, he, he worked with different acronyms, right? He worked, um, and I went, I went to the hearing. I went to court. I went to visit him. Um, Daniel is, is a man of integrity. Um, he was placed in a communications management unit within USP uh, Marion prison. And these units are meant for quote-unquote terrorists. And they heavily monitor all of the communications. They monitor who can see you, who can talk to you. And this has been done with every whistleblower across the board. They've been silenced. Um, and I think that... Um, I think that we need to pay attention to the actual overbroad Kafkaesque law known as the Espionage Act 
which is going to be talked about in one of your later episodes. And we need to understand that the people who confront the Espionage Act, they know. And the integrity that it took, I'm going to get teary-eyed, for Daniel to come forward and go under this sort of Damocles for over seven years before they actually brought his case forward. I mean, nobody, that's torture. I mean, he was trying to go to school. He was trying to get an education. He was trying to do what I have the absolute privilege of being able to do now. And he was stopped from that. He was stopped from doing that for telling the truth. Just think about that for a moment. That could be your son or daughter. Let's take a closer look at the Espionage Act. So it isn't. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on, sharing your story, um, your opinions, and um, how you feel about Daniel and like really sharing like the human side of his case, because I think a lot of people, you know, sort of highlight the drone papers, but not really, you know, just the the conflict of conscience he had to go through to do what he did. Um, thank you so much. Um, and to our listeners, uh, you are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio, WPFW in Washington, D.C., WBAI in New York City, and KPFT in Houston. We'll be right after this break with William Nyheisel. everyone welcome back um i am we just finished in in, an interview with lisa ling um and now i'm here with william nyheisel he's a human rights and civil civil liberties advocate with the whistleblower and source protection program at expose facts which provides legal support for whistleblowers and media sources in the national security and human rights arena arena william is an anti-war and human rights 
uh, activists with expertise at the intersections of technology, constitutional law, and national security, and has worked to support legal defense and public advocacy efforts for some of the most aggressively prosecuted truth tellers of our time. Um, so, like I just said, we talked to Lisa Ling about her experience with the drone program and a bit about da uh, her friend Daniel Hale, who is currently serving uh, almost a four-year federal prison term in Marion, Illinois, for whistleblowing on the drone program. Uh, so, William, are there any updates to Daniel's case that listeners should know about? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, the main thing is that Daniel has just applied for commutation and the Justice Department has received his application. So commutation being, um, you know, one form of executive clemency that the president can offer. Um, it's short of a pardon being the other form. So commutation means that simply that his uh, prison sentence would be reduced and he uh, hopefully would be released. Um, it, is, it does not fully uh, wipe away the conviction as would a pardon, but that is, uh, you know, what you can apply for at this stage according to the Justice Department policies. Um, so there's, there's a branch of the justice department that reviews that and sort of vets these applications and makes recommendations to the president on whether or not, you know, they feel that he meets, um, you know, their internal guidelines for being deserving of, of clemency. So, uh, we are hoping that they will, you know, give full attention to that and, and, uh, hopefully, um, president Biden will eventually offer that pardon, excuse me, the commentation. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving some background to what a commutation is. Um, just for the listeners, I guess a pardon is a different form of clemency where um, it's, from my understanding, like their record is sort of wiped clean. Like they're, I don't, maybe you can give a better description of what a pardon is as opposed to what Daniel's lawyers are asking for. Yeah, no, that's essentially it exactly. I mean, a pardon, um, it, the benefit of a pardon beyond a commutation is that it, you know, it sort of restores your full voting rights and um, essentially, you know, expunges your record in a sense. Got it. Thank you so much. Um, so can you walk us through Daniel's experience with the drone program or what sort of specifically led him to blow the whistle in the first place? Yeah. Um, Daniel was an intelligence analyst with the Air Force and also worked with the NSA. He was sort of at the heart of the drone warfare program um, and involved with the, sort of the targeting um, process. He was based in Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan. Um, so he had a real, um, you know, upfront view to the drone assassination program. And, you know, I think Daniel, you know, he spoke about how he began to see these problems, these systemic problems, that these weren't, you know, one-off um, mistakes that civilians were being killed, that there were real systematic problems. And he, like a lot of us, hoped that President Obama would come into office and really start rolling back these things that, um, you know, were sort of violating, arguably, um, you know, the, the, the international humanitarian law, you know, the laws of war, human rights, and grew, I think, increasingly disappointed in the lack of that happening. And not only that, but the statements that uh, leaders continue to make, both military and political leaders, uh, were not really informing the public on what the drone warfare program was. There was very, there was so much secrecy around it. And when they did speak about it, uh, you know, it was 
very, it was misleading at best and arguably a lie. Um, so I think, you know, he grew increasingly frustrated and felt that that was starting away in his conscience. And, you know, he actually, his military service ended and he went on to uh, work for a contractor that worked on the drone program. And he described how, um, you know, some of the, the, these contractors who were themselves also in some cases, former veterans of, of the military side, you know, they would gather at some points and uh, watch, you know, what's sometimes called as a, you know, drone porn, um, these videos of, of people being assassinated and sort of making jokes and laughing and treating it, you know, like a joke. And, you know, he describes that as a, as a breaking point when he knew that he couldn't bear this on his conscience anymore, that, that uh, these lives were being treated as so disposable and that the public was being so misled about the true nature of the drone program. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Daniel's accused of leaking the information that came out in the drone papers that were, that were published by The Intercept. Um, what revelations were made in the drone papers that sort of stuck out to people the most? And what did this say about the drone program that the American people weren't being told? Well, the, the, the top line, you know, the big headline was essentially that the military knew that, you know, they had done a, studies of their program looking at the sort of the, the effectiveness of it. And they, you know, they were not necessarily looking at the civilian harm aspect. They were looking at sort of like, how do we manage this better? How do we, you know, the operational um, capacity of the program. But what came out of their studies was that they were aware that during the period of their study, as many as 90% of the people who were killed in these strikes were not the intended targets. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, they were all non-combatants. There may have been other people who were combatants, you know, in, in these organizations. They may have been people who were on the targeting list, but the government, the military didn't know who they were was the point. And so, you know, they, they couldn't be out there saying to the public, making these claims of accuracy and precision and, you know, the minimal civilian harm that they were talking about when they knew they were aware that, they couldn't identify, they couldn't say who 90% of these uh, casualties were. And so that was the main one, but there are others. Um, you know, we often, we describe Daniel as sort of a drone whistleblower as sort of shorthand, but really it was the drone program also, it entails the surveillance side, you know, the terrorist watch list. And so some of the documents um, pertain to answer questions that had never been answered before. We didn't know, how, you know, how do you, who is on the terrorist watch list? How do you get on it? Can you get off of it? How would you know if you were on it and your rights were being violated? And so there were some of the documents related to the watch list. And that was um, actually came up during the trial. Uh, sorry, pre-trial. There was not actually a trial, but um, one of the briefs that was filed in preparation for the trial was an amicus brief by the Council of American Islamic Relations. And this was really important because it, it was arguing that you know, they had been for years trying to restore the, you know, get remedy for the rights of their clients, um, in many cases, uh, Muslim or uh, Middle Eastern background Americans who had been, you know, illegally surveilled or placed on no fly lists or watch lists. 
but they couldn't prove that they were arbitrarily and discriminatorily placed on these lists because no one really knew what the criteria was. And the government was sort of claiming it was a state secret. And, and you know, if you if they were caught in this catch-22 of like, well, we don't know how to prove, but we can't get access to that information. And so these documents for the first time allowed some of these lawsuits to go forward and for some of their clients to finally win redress that their rights were be indeed being violated in court. So that was really important that, you know, not only um, are these programs extremely, uh, you know, they're obviously brutal and deleterious to the human rights of people abroad, but they're violating the rights of human, uh, sorry, of American citizens. Um, just maybe it might be helpful for the listeners to sort of get maybe a timeline of this, because I thank you so much for highlighting the um, the amicus brief uh, that was filed by CARE, because I think that's something so overlooked when people talk about Daniel Hale. So um, I really appreciate it. And I, uh, but maybe it might be helpful for the listeners to sort of get a timeline of the case, because I know it might be confusing, because William and I mentioned, um, like, the Obama administration, but Daniel's uh, sentencing was only uh, last July. So um, maybe we can talk just for a second about the timeline of it. So the drone papers came out about when and the and when was Daniel first sort of um, you know accused of the of these crimes and then we'll kind of go into the Espionage Act if that sounds good. Yeah. So, and that's that. You know, the timeline is actually really important for a number of reasons, um, which I'll get to. But so, thank you for bringing that up. Um, Daniel's military service. Um, he was he was serving from between two thousand nine to two thousand thirteen, I believe. And then he went on to work as a contractor in 2014. Now the, the, and that is when the disclosures were alleged to have happened because as a contractor, Daniel um, still had access. He still had clearance there. And so, you know, he was accused of at that point um, taking those documents and giving them to the journalist at the intercept. The intercept published the, the drum papers. I believe it was fall of 2015 um, but it was really, it was in 2014 that the FBI first raided, uh, Daniel's house, as I recall. And so he's been, you know, he was living under the, the, the sort of, the sort of Damocles of this prosecution, not knowing when or if it was coming for, I think five years before he was finally indicted in 2019 under the Trump administration. And, you know, it's interesting because there's some reason to believe that, even within the justice department, some were uncomfortable with bringing forward this prosecution. You know, there was, there was, there was a certain um, cohort within the justice department during the Obama administration that felt that some of these prosecutions against whistleblowers uh, were maybe going too far in some cases. And so we don't know, um, but we think that there, that may have been the case here and that it was really the Trump administration that came in and really um, doubled down. And we've seen this, you know, a couple of times, throughout the war on terror, like, you know, the transition from the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and again, from the Obama, the Trump administration, each new administration tends to kind of double down in their efforts to like hunt down leakers and prosecute them criminally. And so we, you know, you had Jeff Sessions coming in and talking about how they were like, you know, amping up their, their leak hunting um, team in the justice department and how they were, you know, they had amped up their leak prosecutions by 800% and so forth. And so that's really when that's when the indictment came down. So that, you know, we, there's reason to believe that that was the process too with Hale's prosecution. 
And then of course, um, you know, Espionage Act cases are always um, a little bit drawn out um, because of the secrecy that surrounds these cases and all of the pretrial preparation that goes into it. There's something called the Classified Information Procedures Act, uh, which is sort of, these are the sort of procedures through which um, the government has worked out how to bring these cases. Because for a long time, the thing that was holding back the government from charging these whistleblowers was that they didn't want to have to acknowledge or reveal more classified information in the trial itself. Um, but they're able to use these procedures to, to sort of minimize that. But the, you know, the downside is that the public then um, doesn't get to see a lot of the, you know, what would happen at trial. And so those motions were going back and forth um, in the Hale case as well. And then COVID also um, put a pause on things um, when that hit. So it was, it, you know, the timeline has really been stretched out. Like, you know, Daniel got, he was fortunate in that he got a lower sentence than what many were expecting. And we, you know, four years is, is a long time, but it frankly probably was a miracle given what the government was asking for and given how punitive the government has been in previous cases. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is that, like I said, you know, Daniel had been living under this, this episode for, you know, it's, it's been almost 10 years at this point that he's been sort of living under this, this prosecution. Thank you so much. I think that was really helpful. And to talk more about the Espionage Act, just because I think a lot of people don't, um, you know, know what it is or understand how old the Espionage Act is. Um, so Daniel was charged on the Espionage Act and like many, many whistleblowers um, have been. Um, can you explain to listeners like what the Espionage actually is and what it like was intended for? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to give the, the quick condensed version because there's a lot of history. As you mentioned, it's quite old. It's the Espionage Act of 1917. And, you know, what it was intended for sort of depends on who you ask and when you ask that question, because, you know, um, it was written by the Wilson administration. And I think the Wilson administration intended it to silence dissent, uh, the criticism that was coming from union organizers, anti-war activists and leftists at that time. So they used it to lock up by the thousands, um, those activists, including uh, famously Eugene Debs, the labor activist, uh, you know, because he said it was uh, rich man's war, poor man's fight. Now they, after World War I, they, they drew back that, that aspect of it um, that related to just pure speech. And so it became more about documents and information um, but then again, it was, you know, not that often used um, throughout the Cold War. And in 1950, during the Internal Security Act, they expanded it once again and, and sort of grafted on the, the classification system to that because the original act just talked about national defense information. And that's one of the, the, the problems is that the law is so vague that it's not really clear what national defense information constitutes. It could be economic data. It could be data about steel production. It could be environmental data around, you know, a military base that could all be national defense information. And the courts in some of these cases have sort of tried to sort of come up with, they've tried to paste on like fixes to that. Um, but they're really sort of, it's sort of a duct tape job. It doesn't really solve the underlying constitutional issues in our opinion. Um, it's really a big threat to free speech still. Um, the, the law, it doesn't, under the law, it doesn't matter, uh, what your intent was. So it, you know, in legal, in, in criminal legal cases, there's, there's something called a culpability standard, meaning, you know, oftentimes you have to have a certain state of mind to be considered guilty of this crime or a certain intent. And so 
under the Espionage Act, that's famously low. You just have to be aware that the information could do harm to the national security of the United States. And in the, you know, for the, in the case of uh, employees such as uh, Daniel, the government makes you sign a form when you, you know, when you start your job saying, I'm aware that any release of classified information could cause grievous harm to national security. And so therefore that already satisfies, um, you know, the legal requirement already that, you know, you can't really argue because you signed that form that the government can say, well, see, you were aware, you know, you must've, you must've intended to <laughs> do this because you had been notified on your first day when you signed the paperwork. So there's a lack of, what's called a specific intent, meaning that you don't actually have to intend to commit espionage, like to sell information to an adversarial foreign power. And that's how they've sort of been able to draw this around whistleblowing to say that, you know, even though whistleblowers, they're not trying to aid some foreign power or damage the United States, they're actually trying to uh, inform, you know, the U.S. public of what they have a right to know. But the Espionage Act doesn't care. And the government started using that increasingly uh, you know, you saw there was the case against Daniel Ellsberg in the 70s with the Pentagon Papers. There was one case in the 80s, you know, sort of the under the Reagan administration. And then it really got brought back out under the Obama administration, was you know, really brought back um, and used against a number of a whole slew of whistleblowers um, starting around 2009, 2010. There's a whole bunch of indictments that started coming down. So it's become, you know, what we called the war on whistleblowers. And that the Espionage Act has been really the central pillar of that. Thank you. And as you said, like, I think something that kept being brought up around Daniel's sentencing was that the government never, like the prosecution never was able to prove that Daniel's, uh, like, alleged revelations uh, harmed the U.S. national security at all. But I guess it's because they didn't have to, based off- They don't have to, exactly. They only have to show, and, you know, and this is, you're seeing this in the Trump case, too, where he's saying, you know, it wasn't classified- well, in both cases, whether you're talking about Daniel Hale or Donald Trump, classification doesn't settle the matter. It, classification is just one aspect, but really it has to be, the courts have said that the information has to be closely held, that it wasn't publicly available. And so it really is, it's, it's national defense information because the government says it is, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a notoriously loose standard. Gotcha. Um, so there have been whistleblowers before Daniel Hale and there will be whistleblowers after. Do you think Daniel's case uh, says anything interesting about whistleblowers that might come after him? Do you think it sets a precedent if the U.S. is successful in, for example, like extraditing Julian Assange? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I think um, what we've seen is not not just Daniel, but, you know, his case is you also see it in the case of Rodney Winter, where, you know, they're really going to extremes here. I mean, this isn't, you know, Daniel didn't, um, he didn't leak like millions of documents. It was a couple of documents, you know, a couple documents surrounding one program that was causing, you know, really reasonable, uh, ac- like reason to believe that there were war crimes and massive harm to civilians going on systematically. And Daniel was not someone who you could even remotely accuse of having any kind of, you know, grudge or animus against government. He was very clear that he was suffering a really um, big crisis of conscience and that, you know, he didn't want to, he wasn't trying to break the law, that there was something he wanted to do, 
but he was placed in conflict between his conscience and his duty to protect civilians, protect the constitution and, you know, the, the need to protect classified information that the government asserts. And so how do you navigate that? And, you know, what Daniel's case shows is that the government will go after you really, even if you have the, you know, the purest motives of protecting civilians from a massacre, the government will treat you as if you are an enemy of the state. You know, if you look at the filings that the government filed against Daniel, they weren't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like they were carrying themselves like, you know, we acknowledge that he was trying to do the right thing in the difficult circumstances, but we have to prosecute this because the law is the law. They were talking about how, you know, he was worse than a spy as a whistleblower. That it, whistleblowers are worse than spies because the whole world gets to read about it. And they, they filed a brief um, arguing that they compared him to a heroin dealer at one point uh, because at sentencing, um, you know, Hale's defense team was asking for the lower end of the range of sentencing because, you know, he, again, he, you know, he didn't have intent to harm the U S he was trying to do the right thing as he saw it. The government said it doesn't matter. It would be like a heroin dealer asserting that he didn't mean to harm the community, but he still sold heroin to the community. And so he still did the harm. So, I mean, those, that's the kind of just really aggressive um, prosecution, just the really over the top punitive things that they'll bring against you, even if you have the purest motives and are really trying to do the right thing. And so it's an enormously chilling message to whistleblowers. It's not going to stop all whistleblowers. Um, you're still going to have people who, you know, are placed in that crisis of conscience that, you know, I mean, Daniel said, God help me. I couldn't do otherwise. He said, you know, he expressed it at sentencing that he was sorry for um, taking those papers, but that what really wrecked his conscience was the taking of human lives and that God help me. I couldn't do otherwise was his quote. Wow. Thank you so much, uh, William Nyheisel, for joining us today. And thank you so much for all that incredible context of the Espionage Act, Daniel Hale's case, and the implications for other whistleblowers. Um, <clears throat> if any of our listeners want to follow any updates from Daniel Hale's support team, you can follow them on Twitter at Team Daniel Hale or standwithdanielhale.org. Um, and to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say Code War, we say Code Pink. It's blood for Iraq, but Iran.